welcome to the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ podcast. Here we will have a collection of sermons, conversations, and other inspirational material to help you grow in your walk with God. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Good morning, church. Uh, it is my honor to close out this wonderful series that we've been doing. I really loved uh, Sajin's idea of honoring Black History Month through looking at the heritage of African-American spirituals and preaching from that place. Uh, the spiritual that was put on my heart, uh, I remember Chip used to love this song. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Turn. You remember that song? So uh, what I loved about that song it was what they called a freedom song during the civil rights movement. And I wanted to bring our conversation and make it a little bit more contemporary. I appreciate the uh, acknowledgement of the slavery era. Of course, it was very important in American history. But our conversation today is going to be a little bit more contemporary in that sense. So um, I'll be honest, uh, this isn't a safe message, right? And uh, my hope, my, my prayer has been that it would stir feelings. Expect feelings. But in, in light of that, though, I feel like it's really important for us to have conversations. As we're ending Black History Month, I'm hoping that it could be the beginning of a conversation at another level, at another depth, regarding who we are, regarding our journey in this life. As you know, my wife and I have the great honor we've been asked to uh, lead up our first squad, social, cultural, unity and diversity team. Excited about that. The members of our team are Dave Bonomi, Tanisha Luna, Jenny Hammond, Charles Yee, Sade Smith, Sade Seaton, Sheldon Smith, Wendell Jackson, LaShonda, Aretha uh, Sanders, and Astaria Diaz. Uh, really excited to work with this team. We've already started uh, some great conversation. And I know some have wondered, well, you know, when are we going to hear more from here, from them publicly, from us publicly? But I want to ask your patience because we're trying to become. We are trying to have some hard conversations among us. We're studying our Bible. We're reading. We're considering. And it's one thing to join a board that's already existing, but we are becoming a board, if you can imagine that. We are trying to create our vision, our mission statement. You know, what are our principles? How we'll conduct our meetings? All of that. So beg your patience. We're going to participate in some great things this year that are already planned and expect more to come. So... In preparation for this message, um, I, I watched uh, some episodes of an award-winning documentary called Eyes on the Prize. Who's seen it? I want to recommend, if you would like to dig more into any of what I'm going to share, that you go there. It is so wonderful, so wonderful. Moving, riveting, the footage, the, the, the hearing of the stories, not just from you know, seeing it on film, but also from people who were there. It was filmed in 1987, so many of the people who were very active on the front lines in the civil rights movement were interviewed here. And you know, you know, it just so happened that the timing of this, Jen and I and our family were away on vacation, and uh, whoo, it was good. It was good. It was good because, you know, I sat, we, we went on a cruise, and I would sit by the ocean, and I watched some of these things, and I would think about it, and I feel like God was just working on me, on my own heart. And I feel like, 
you know, I realized that there's a lot of feelings that were brought up there that I would choose not to confront. Don't want to go there. Don't want to go there, because, but I realize also that I need to go there. Why? Because I can think of many specific situations in my spiritual walk where the enemy came after that, where he came through that portal, where he came through feelings of hurt, of anger, of fear, based on identity, based on my experience in this life. I'll tell you specifically, there was a time uh, when I was a student at UMass uh, fall of 95 that I walked away for nine months. And uh, this, this was circulating in my head, for sure, for sure. So this is part of why I really feel that it's important uh, for us to have these conversations. And again, I pray that this is just the beginning. I also, in preparation for this, uh, the squad, we've been uh, going through a devotional book by Michael Burns called The Crown That Will Last. And so devotional book meaning he has a little article gives you some scriptures to read, you know, kind of expounds on those scriptures and then leaves you with questions to kind of ponder for yourself. It's, you know, a, a seven-week devotion. And so in the process of this, and we started talking about it as a squad, you know, some have felt very understandably that it kind of loses them in terms of experience. So Michael Burns, uh, he's, a, he's a white man. He shares stories from his life growing up, which is very different than the lives of many of our members growing up. Understandable. But there's this theological exposition that he does. There's this Bible study that he does that brings its soul front and center to me. For me, I feel like that exposition was so on point. It was clear to me, it has been clear to me, how much this has been a fault line. This has been an area that the enemy goes after continually in order to divide the church. It's not new. It's not new. It's not just about our era. It's in Romans. It's in Corinthians. It's in Acts. It's, it's in the book of Ephesus, Ephesians. It, it was always, has always been there, and the church, for some reason, always falls asleep. Always falls asleep on this. But leave it to God. Our God cares about us so much that he's willing to wake us up at, dif at difficult Deep cost, he's willing to revive our hearts so that we pay attention because this is an area that threatens the very existence of the church. It is the very mission of the church, as we're going to look at, and the enemy knows that, so he comes after it. He comes after it. He's got an opposing purpose to God's. It's vulnerable. It's vulnerable because it's very easy for pride and identity to become idolatry. It's very easy. They're right up against each other. And if any of us in this room is not careful, we will trip over this. We will trip over this. For example, Paul, this was him, right? Paul, Philippians 3, verse 4. Um, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider, it, consider them rubbish and the 
the translation of a word that means something else, theses. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So Jesus came, of course, to reverse the curse of Adam, right? That one man sinned, and therefore all of us were, were locked in sin. But the church, but the church is here to reverse the curse of Babel, where, where everybody was separated according to different languages. But right here in this room, God is moving right now. He's not done. He's not done, guys. He's, it's in process. Right, right now, he's moving to bring us back and to change that curse. So I prayed about this, and again, I expect feelings. Expect feelings. But I want to give a challenge at the beginning, which I'll repeat at the end. We could have what I kind of see in my mind as three responses, right? One, one response is, hey, what's for lunch? <laughs> you know, try to push it out of your consciousness as quickly as you can so that you can get back to your life and whatever that looks like. That's number one. Number two, I'm calling, what's he so upset about? Where you might want to go to like-minded people, talk about the sermon, the feelings, whatever it is, in a way that's going to affirm what you already believe. It's going to, that you're going to, you can find someone that agrees with what you already think, and you know where they are. They're your friends. Challenge number three, response number three, which I want to ask us to take, is what did you think? What did you think? Find someone that you likely does not think like you and ask them, hey, how was that for you? Can you relate to that? Is that what you go through? This is what my thoughts are. All right? You guys ready? Before we go any further, let's pray. Ah, uh, Father, God, I love being here. I love this group. Um, I know you love this group. I love our mission. I love uh, being a part of this. And, Lord, I pray to be used by you as just one formative piece, just one piece. I want to play my role. I want your will to be done. I pray that all of us would submit our will to yours. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the title of my message is Turn Me Around. That little tagline from the end of that. And now let's go over to Acts chapter 7. So um, I want to talk about the mission of the church, the civil rights movement, and some of my experiences personally. Okay? So... At the end of Matthew, the Great Commission was given to the disciples. As we all know it by heart, go make disciples of. Okay, so they get that charge. And then the book of Acts, as it unfolds, it shows that how that was played out. You know, chapter 1, you know, the, Jesus continues to teach them, promises the Spirit. Chapter 2, the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. People start speaking in the tongues of all the people represented there, symbolic of that reversal of the curse of Babel, right? That was a symbol. So now they're speaking in all these tongues. The church is, 3,000 people get baptized who become the church. They're growing, they're thriving, they're connecting with each other. They're a family, they're a community. Uh, it gets up to this part in Acts chapter 6 where there's a little trouble in paradise that the Grecian Jews said, hey, wait a minute. 
uh, our widows are being treated differently than your Hebrew uh, dominant culture widows, right? And they call it to the attention of the apostles. So now the apostles are left with a choice of what they're going to do about this complaint that has come to them. Very wisely, they chose to empower seven deacons. Seven deacons who, by the way, were of the minority culture at the time, the Greek culture. And, and then the storyline kind of centers on two in particular of those deacons, Stephen and Philip. So um, Stephen, they, they accused him of saying things against the temple, against the law. Basically, they were saying he wasn't legit. He's not, he's not a real Jew. Who's this Greek upstart who's coming in here trying to tell us how to live our religion, right? He, in response to their accusations, broke down this sermon about the history of Israel step by step by step by step by step for two chapters of the Bible. Tells them all about themselves. And then culminates here in verse 51, if we can pick up there, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Where, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed the righteous one, those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He rebukes them. He rebukes them. And then their response, oh, no. Oh, no, this Greek Jew convert is going to tell us how to live our religion, going to tell us about who we are. Let's take care of this, guys. And they proceed to stone him. In principle, I'm going to invoke an ugly word here. That was a lynching. That was a lynching. This uppity Greek who thinks he knows our religion better than us. Let's put him in his place. Let's, let's shut him up real quick. And they proceeded to do this. And can you imagine the trauma that that was? That, you know, this, the church is only three, is three years old at this point. And every young disciple there who probably, now Stephen, he wasn't a, a in the back kind of deacon. He was an up front preaching the word kind of deacon. And, and, and you know what? They just decided you know, let's take him out. And can you imagine the trauma for the disciples that watched that? Watched him murdered. So over in verse 8, eight verse 1, an important thing to note here is to this point, all of the drama that's unfolding in the church is taking place in Jerusalem. Taking place in Jerusalem. But by the way, again, what was the Great Commission again? Go make disciples of? Well, for some reason, they were stuck in Jerusalem. So, 8-1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at, at Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaim the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they paid close attention to what he said, which shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, many paralytics and crippled were healed, and so there was great joy in 
that city. So they were scattered. That kind of reminds me of something. When I think about something scattered, what does it remind you of? Seeds. Seeds. So they were stuck in first gear. And as hard as this was, as hard as this world was, this, this, this tragic death ignited this movement for what it would become. The, Philip went on to start what would become the church in Antioch, starting with a Sumerian sorcerer. Started, convert one, Sumerian sorcerer, right? And now the church in Antioch became the launching center for the Gentile part of the movement. Amazing. Amazing what God did there. Cultural, ethnic diversion, racial, racial division has always been an issue for the church. We always default to what is comfortable. So 1989, I had come back from training in the Army down in uh, Georgia. And uh, I was church shopping. I had some nice experiences. And I decided that uh, I, wanna, I want a community like that again. So I, I wasn't even necessarily conscious of this. But I was definitely shopping for a black church. And so I was at a job, a job interview. Lady in the cafeteria invites me to church. And uh, the woman who invited me was black. I assumed that her church was black. And so I went to this church. I show up in the Boston Garden, February 5th, 1989. And uh, someone re recognized that I was visiting and uh, gave me, oh, we got it already. Uh, and, then, and then someone recognized I was visiting. And I said I was living with my parents in Bridgewater. And, uh, and they said, oh, let me introduce you to the guys from Bridgewater. And then I meet this man. And I want to introduce you to Pete, Pete Kruger. Come on, man. <laughs> so what do you remember from that day, Pete? Wow. Uh, you know, I was just, um, I was relatively new to the Boston area. After becoming a disciple in Buffalo, uh, I decided to move out and be part of the Boston church. So I was just just learning the ropes, you know. I was, I was there for worship, fired up. And, um, you know, I, I, I look up, and this is the old Boston Garden. You know, mm -hmm. you know, rats running around and <laughs> dungeons. Yeah. And there's this guy sitting up there by himself, and it's kind of dark up there, and he's alone. And it was it pretty clearly he didn't need a neon sign saying, "I'm a visitor here." <laughs> you know, like this. And um, but you know, uh, Rondi is awesome, and uh, you know, some of the the, uh, the ushers had uh, said, uh, you know, where are you from, and you know, well, the Southern Edge or whatever we were called back then, Outer South or something. They sit over here. So I, I went over and uh, just said, I'm just going to befriend this guy and see what happens, you know. And so we exchanged phone numbers. We talked a little bit. It turns out he lived about two miles away, you know. And um, we, just, we just built a friendship. We started, uh, uh, you know, we had some quiet times. We, um, we went and played some uh, basketball at the uh, YMCA. Uh, Rondi did some weightlifting. I didn't know anything about weightlifting, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. But, uh, but it was wonderful. And um, I think that if, uh, you know, if you wanted to have a poster child for the, for the word openness, I think that was Rondi Allen, you know. And um, I, just, I just praise God that I was part of that process. Amen. And uh, he's just such a joy, such a joy. And uh, I love you dearly, bro. Love you too, bro. Love you, too. Oh, that was, that was such a kind version of that story. That was such a kind version of that story. Oh, my gosh.
So in my mind, again, I, I walked into this church. I thought it was going to be black, and I'm like, oh, what is this? <laughs> and, and it didn't fit this, but I was wrong in the most beautiful way, in the most beautiful, beautiful way. I had no idea what God had in store. And I'm, and I'm sitting here next to Pete, and Pete's trying to flip the pages of my Bible and, and ask me, do you, do you want, hey, you want something to write with? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Can we give me? And you know what, though? When we went to go play basketball at the Y, I saw there was something in him that I needed. All right. <clears throat> Point two. <laughs> actually, um, <clears throat> so, and I think actually, let me even say this is that it was so kind because I remember I actually was kind of dodging you a little bit, Pete. And, um, <laughs> and uh, my mom, you call, and I tell my mom, I'm not home, I'm not home. And then, and then when I picked up the phone, it was actually kind of by mistake, and you said, can we go play basketball at the Y? I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I can do that. And, and Pete, Pete pursued me, and, and, and I'm, obviously I'm so deeply grateful, hard to even hold it together, but I really, because I understood that it was God who was pursuing me. And so, amen. So, uh, I'm not sure how far I'm going to get into this, but let's, uh, I'd like to uh, show a video as an introduction to point two about the movement and the song. Please open in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14. In Proverbs chapter 14, in verse 8. It says, the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Verse 9, fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. Verse 10, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. So the civil rights movement was a struggle for social justice that took place mainly during the 1950s and 60s for black Americans to gain equal rights under law in the United States. The Civil War had abolished slavery, but it didn't end discrimination against black people. They continued to endure the devastating effects of racism, especially in the South. By the mid-20th century, black Americans had more than enough of prejudice and violence against them. That's from history.com. They, along with many white Americans, mobilized and began an unprecedented fight for equality that spanned two decades. And there's a backstory. Ralph Abernathy introduced this song that we just listened to at a, at a rally, and it became um, a freedom song. They would ain't going to let no fill in the blank turn me around. They changed that, and they use it to rally one another. And the different highlights, uh, which for the sake of time in the civil rights movement that happened, many important ones, Brown versus Education, Bus Boycott, Cot, uh, 1957, Little Rock Nine, Civil Rights Act of 1957, the, civil, the Freedom Riders, 1961, um, of course, March on Washington, August 1963, I Have a Dream speech. Uh, one I'd like to highlight in 1954, Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, initiated by John F. Kennedy before he was assassinated. And um, the law guaranteed equal employment for all, limited use of voter literacy, literacy tests that they were using in order to try to 
stop people from voting. And uh, in March 1965, um, it took an especially violent turn um, on what they call Bloody Sunday, uh, March 7, 1965. 600 uh, demonstrators uh, walking across the bridge from Selma into Montgomery were met by police, dogs, fire hoses, billy clubs. Um, very violent. So, you know, looking at these things, it brings up a certain thing for me. Like I said, a lot of feelings, fear, anger. And there's a specific fear. It's this fear of being lynched that comes up for me from time to time. I'm sharing personally now. I've experienced this a couple times. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, probably about February 1988, I was at Fort Gordon, Georgia, in the Army being trained. Um, we had just moved there in, in December, January. I decided I wanted to take a ride to see what was going on around Augusta, where we were with, with, four, with three other friends. Me and my three other friends, we were driving. We didn't know where. There's no GPS in these days. We're just driving. And uh, we pull up to this intersection. The dude in the front, Mark Favors, he cusses out loud. Oh! And then he kind of ducks. And I'm in the back behind the driver's seat. And I'm looking out my window. We pull up alongside of a Bronco with a white sheet over it. that said WKKK radio on the, on, the, on the sheet. And we stopped at this light at the intersection. And I look up. And there's probably about 50 white robes and cone hats all around us, right? Faces of the hoods up. And, uh, you know, Mark gets militant now. We should stop and get a pamphlet. No, Mark, we're not going to stop and get a pamphlet. We pull through the intersection, and I'm looking out of my window in awe. This one with the right red satin thingy and black crosses on him. I look him straight in the eye. He looks back at me smirking. And I'll never forget the look on his face. By the way, at the same duty station where I was, there was this uh, friend of ours. We called him Grunt because he was an infantryman from Fort Stewart, Georgia. He was walking outside of his post by himself when a group of white men in a white pickup truck rolled up on him, held him down, dumped acid on his arm. The reason why he was at this duty station where I was, I was being trained to be a nurse, is he was having reconstructive surgery on his mutilated arm over the course of a year, two years. I, I could tell you more. I had a night where I was arrested in December 2000 for walking in the park, literally the charge. I was uh, taken to a jail cell and do a few other things that unfolded. I was assaulted by four police officers. And then charged with account and battery, assault and battery against the police officer. Four counts. Many of you were here. You didn't know that because it wasn't a story. I just say it was a story I was asked not to retell. This is a reality, a fear, that I and I know many other people have lived in. And, it, and this idea of lynching, you know, it's what, I, it's what I see when I see the news and I see stories like Eric Garner. Uh, I Can't Breathe, the one on the New York sidewalk. Um, Ahmaud Arbery jogging through a neighborhood. Um, you, know, you know, Sandra Bland pulled over for a blinker or something and disappeared. And of course, George Floyd. That, that's, the, that's the way I experience those things. It activates. Oh my gosh, could that be me? Could that be my son? 
So one particularly ugly incident that happened that really was kind of considered a kickoff, um, took the, the civil rights movement to another level, August 28, 1955, the incident of Emmett Till. Who's familiar with that? About half the room. And so this was when a 14-year-old boy, if you look at his picture, he actually looks a lot like Asa, uh, had, had flirted with a woman in a store, allegedly, and uh, the husband decided that they were going to take him, teach him a lesson, killed him in the most horrific way until so, so his body was mutilated and it couldn't be identified except for a ring that was on his finger, right? A trial ensued, a segregated trial. They didn't allow any people of color into that trial room. Please go, go watch this on Eyes on the Prize, episode one, $3 on uh, Prime Video. They didn't allow anybody into the courtroom, including a congressman who had come, congressman of color who had come to visit they were all acquitted. The reason for their acquittal was the body, they couldn't posit, they said you couldn't positively identify that body. That was their argument. Not even that they weren't there, they, that they couldn't positively identify the body. So after this, the mom, and, I, and actually, uh, uh, not sure, we're a little over, uh, forgive me. Um, uh, the mom had, uh, had, had requested to have an open casket funeral so that people could see what they did to her child. And actually, I do, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to just have, for about a minute and a half, I'd like to play a video of her uh, responding to this. So that mom, how courageous. How courageous. And I wish, and in the PBS video, they show her being interviewed at that time, like weeks after this death. And her mind was so much on helping other people to learn from this. Believing other people would respond to this, right? So the, the, the press picked it up and they covered it on the news and that was intentional. She wanted other people to see. She wanted the American consciousness to wake up, right? Such courage. But of course, it reminds me that uh, on our behalf, there was someone else who allowed their son to be mutilated to be marred beyond recognition. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle, get this, many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Ephesians chapter 2, please turn there. That death, the ugliness of that death, another lynching in principle had a reason. It had a reason. Highlighted in the middle of this line in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh, with his body, the law and its commandments and its regulations. His purpose, his purpose, guys, was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which he, by which he put to death their hostility. That was his purpose, 
Guys, the question is, is what are we going to do? Are we going to allow the Holy Spirit to turn us around? I'm so grateful of how he's done that over the years. Are you going to allow anything in this world, certainly any news cycle, to turn you around? Guys, are you going to ask what's for lunch and then move on? Are you going to say, what was he so upset about? And move on. Or are you going to say, what did you think? How was that for you? Can we talk? Please do that. And, and don't let anybody turn you around, church. Love you. This has been an episode of the Pioneer Valley Church of Christ podcast. To learn more about us, visit our website at www.pioneervalleycoc.org.